This holiday season, please consider supporting the Cato Institute and specifically the Cato Daily Podcast. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. If you support Cato with a donation of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate someone else to receive that benefit and all of the benefits of being a Cato sponsor. That website again, cato.org slash podcast sponsor, and thank you for your generosity. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Sunday, December 30th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. We're familiar with free speech issues cropping up on college campuses, but they're mostly raised on public school campuses. What if it's a private university where the promise of academic freedom is supposed to be extended? Rick Esenberg is with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. His group handled just such a case at Marquette University. We spoke in Utah in October. Free speech on campus is, uh, you know, an increasing issue. It's, it's of particular interest to libertarians that want to defend speech on principle and not on uh, the basis of the content of the speech in question. Uh, your organization has brought some cases that, that deal with campus speech, but you know we're more accustomed to thinking of uh, campus speech issues as those that relate merely to publicly administered. Uh, universities. Uh, one of the cases that you're dealing with is at Marquette. And of course, Marquette is a private university where the First Amendment does not apply. So describe that case. Well, a, a private university um, certainly is not subject to, to the First Amendment, but most of them, most major research universities, uh, enter into commitments of academic freedom and free speech by contract. Um, they do that because um, historically in the United States, the market demands it. Uh, if they want to attract the faculty that uh, they want to attract, if they want to be seen as um, a serious university, um, they have to do things like grant tenure and they have to do things like ensure academic freedom. And so most of them will have contracts with uh, their faculty, which in some way incorporate concepts that have been developed over the years by the American Association of University Professors. And these, uh, these concepts will, will guarantee academic freedom. They will guarantee, and in Marquette's case, it said that no one could be terminated for exercising rights that would be protected by the United States Constitution. Uh, and so while universities, private universities don't have to do this, some don't. Some religious universities say, for example, that you cannot take a position which is contrary to the religious doctrine of the sponsoring church. Uh, universities like Marquette tend to uh, extend to their faculties broad guarantees of academic freedom. And that was the case here uh, with uh, a political science professor named John McAdams. Uh, McAdams runs a blog. Um, uh, he is sort of, uh, I think, best described as a sort of curmudgeonly conservative uh, who uh, comments on what he sees as political correctness on campus. Um, and although he's not a Catholic, he often writes about ways in which he thinks the university is uh, acts in ways that are inconsistent with its Catholic identity. The incident that led to um, this particular case um, was an exchange between a graduate instructor and an undergraduate student following a philosophy class. Uh, Marquette, uh, uh, in the, the news coverage uh, surrounding this case, often referred to this graduate instructor as a student but she, in fact, was uh, someone who had completed the coursework for her dissertation and was now being paid by the university to act as an instructor, as you know, the person in charge of the class, uh, while she prepared her dissertation. Uh, 
uh, in an exchange with this student, and we know that the exchange happened in this way because he recorded it on his iPhone. Uh, she said that uh, opposition to same-sex marriage would not be tolerated in her class because it would come off as offensive and that other students uh, might be um, offended or distressed by the expression of that particular opinion. Uh, the student went to the philosophy department at Marquette. Um, he complained. I think it's fair to say he was blown off. Um, he was told that he needed to change his attitude. He was told that they would be watching him. And uh, so he eventually went to uh, Dr. McAdams, who has this blog. Uh, McAdams wrote a post on the exchange between the graduate instructor and the student and said, look, this is not the way a university is supposed to work. You certainly can ask a student to defend his or her views. You can disagree with a student's views, um, but you ought not to say that they are not fit for polite company. You ought not to say that they are beyond the pale, um, particularly where, in this case, the view that he expressed is consistent with um, the view of Marquette sponsoring religious denomination. Uh, so he wrote this post. Uh, in the course of writing the post, he did what we normally do, when we write about people who are exercising authority, he identified her. Uh, Marquette says that uh, he somehow put her private contact information uh, on the internet. That's not true. He linked to her blog, right, a blog in which she publicly expressed her views on a number of controversial issues, something that she's perfectly free to do. It's very admirable for an aspiring young academic to do that. Uh, on her blog, she listed her Marquette contact information. Uh, so what happened is, you know, the story is out there. Um, after a couple of days, um, it gets picked up in the philosophy blogs. I bet you didn't know that there are philosophy blogs, but there are. Uh, it gets picked up by the college fix, and it eventually winds up on Fox News. Um, as a result, the graduate instructor receives uh, a number of emails. Some of them are positive. Most of them are negative. And a few of them are what I would call sort of beyond nasty, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, ag ag aggressive and misogynist and the type of thing that, you know, I, I think all, we would all agree that, you know, although people may have the right to do it, they shouldn't, they shouldn't say things like that ever. As a result, Marquette began the process to terminate Dr. McAdams, uh, someone who had been a tenured professor there for 39 years. Uh, the matter went before a faculty hearing committee, and the faculty hearing committee took the position that, look, you have academic freedom, but uh, you also have uh, some obligation to avoid harm. And because in the internet age, it is foreseeable that someone will uh, react badly to something you put out. Now, it used to be that you know, uh, crazies in their basements used to have to, you know, buy paper, buy envelope, buy a stamp, uh, you know, find out somebody's mailing address and leave the house and go to the post office. It was the golden age of crazies. That's right. Uh, we, we are not, you know, crazies have come into their own at this point. And uh, if, if, in fact, uh, there is this kind of reverse heckler's veto where our, uh, our rights of academic freedom, if they're guaranteed by contract or if they're guaranteed by the First Amendment and the instance of um, you know public opposition to speech, 
if, if that's a limit of our freedom of speech, then we really don't have any at all because it's absolutely impossible for us to know when someone will react in this way. Uh, so the, uh, 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 the faculty hearing committee uh, recommended that McAdams be uh, not terminated, but suspended for one or two semesters. Now, the university professor, uh, president is not bound by the faculty hearing committee, uh, but he decided to accept their recommendation, but then he added a Machiavellian twist. He said that uh, we will not reinstate McAdams from this suspension unless he admits that he's sorry for what he did and essentially confesses that he was wrong. Now, anybody that knows this curmudgeonly conservative professor knows that there's absolutely no way that that was ever going to happen. So the case wound up in court as a breach of contract action, attempting to enforce these commonly used principles of academic freedom in the private university context. Okay, so this is a breach of contract action. It is not, strictly speaking, a First Amendment case. It, it deals with the assumption that Marquette made of providing this kind of, of freedom. But it does sort of uh, send a signal that, you know, there are at least some concerns about the, gr the degree to which universities that have chosen to uphold these values are actually doing so. Right, right. I mean, the, the case is not relevant only for Marquette because the type of contractual commitment that was made here, as I said before, is fairly common for major private research universities. You know, there are small religious colleges which will, you know, you know require, you know, doctrinal consistency for their professors. But, you know, universities like Marquette and Notre Dame, uh, you know, the Ivies, they don't do that. Um, the market demands that they um, extend these concepts of academic freedom. And so this was an opportunity for the highest court of one of our states to interpret these guarantees of academic freedom. And what the court did, and it ruled, uh, our Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled last July, is it said, look, uh, when you, a private university does not have to make these commitments, but when it does, uh, the commitments mean what they say. Um, academic freedom is a robust and broad protection for faculty members to say what they want. Um, that is very consistent with the purpose of academic freedom, which is to protect free inquiry and free expression, not only from the administration, but also from one's faculty colleagues and the court held that these commitments of academic freedom are enforceable in court. I mean, one of the things that Marquette argued is, look, you know, if your faculty colleagues don't approve of what you said, well, then you've been judged by a jury of your peers. Now, the problem, of course, is that guarantees of free speech and academic freedom are, by their nature, protections against the majority. Nobody attempts to sanction popular speech I mean, it's only people who say unpopular things that need this guarantee of freedom of expression. So the notion that we would protect free speech by what amounts to a jury trial or what amounts to a test of, you know, which, which measures what you say by the majority sentiment to the community is antithetical to the guarantee of free speech and academic freedom. And uh, Marquette has decided that's fine. They've accepted the the what the Wisconsin Supreme Court has said? Well, they have no choice. Uh, you know, I mean, they've, they've, they've been sort of oddly defiant. Uh, uh, I, I remember uh, uh, after the decision, someone read to me the statement that put out by the university president, and I remember saying, you know, I think somebody forgot to tell him that he lost. 
uh, they have to comply. Uh, Dr. McAdams will be uh, reinstated to the classroom. He'll, he'll receive his back pay. Uh, there's some indication that Marquette may go back now and change its faculty statutes to qualify this guarantee of academic freedom. They're a private university. They can do it if they want to. Um, I think it would be a tragic mistake. Uh, I, I just, you know, there are reasons that the market has come to demand these guarantees of academic freedom, and there are reasons that they have become customary in American universities. It's because, you know, the whole purpose of a university is uh, to have people with with different, sometimes radically different points of view, live in tension with one another. And yes, they will argue, but they'll live together in this exchange of ideas, we think, um, will um, enrich both the educational experience for the students that attend these universities and also the sort of search for truth um, that we want uh, university professors to engage in. Now, you have another case that is more on point with respect to the First Amendment. Um, th there have been no proceedings in that case. Describe what has what is, uh, happened so far. Right. Well, this is a case in which our client is a young woman named Polly Olson. She's a student at Northeastern Wisconsin Technical College in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, Polly has a practice every Valentine's Day. Um, she does it uh, now in honor of her mother, who is deceased, of handing out homemade Valentines uh, to whoever will take them. Uh, she makes them out of red construction paper, and she writes um, generally what are religious-themed messages on them. You know, you are loved, God cares for you, that type of thing. Well, she doesn't force them on anybody. I mean, it's just something that she thinks is a nice thing to, you know, uh, you know, uh, pass out to people on Valentine's Day. Uh, she was in the process of doing this um, on her college campus, and uh, someone called campus security. Uh, she was detained, and she was told that she may not do this. She was told that her offense was that she was attempting to communicate with her fellow students outside of what is called the public assembly area, but I would call a speech zone. Uh, the speech zone is a relatively small part of campus. Uh, it is where you can speak to your fellow students, but only with the prior permission of the university administration. Uh, to speak to your fellow students out, and, and, I, and when I say speak, I mean, you know. Communicate. Uh, yeah, 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 attempt to communicate ideas, not engage in casual conversation. Uh, uh, to, but, 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 but to attempt to communicate ideas to your fellow students outside the speech zone is considered by the university to be solicitation, although she was not attempting to sell anything or obtain any benefit. I mean, she's simply offering Valentines to people uh, uh, and, and is not permitted. Uh, so we filed an action in uh, a federal court uh, up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And this case does involve the First Amendment. And there is a, a body of law um, which addresses uh, the way in which the First Amendment operates on college campuses. Uh, college campuses are generally considered to be uh, either traditional or designated public forums, that, that are just places that are sort of akin to the street corner um, in which, uh, you know, citizens, or in this case, students, because the college campus is their community, um, uh, are free to engage uh, in speech and uh, attempts to communicate with their fellow students. To be sure, 
the university can have reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. You're not allowed to, you know, walk into a physics lecture and, you know, start yelling about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, not free to, you know, take a loud public address system and, you know, blare it in a way that, you know, makes it impossible for anybody else to speak to one another. But this was not a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. This was a, a, an absolute prohibition of speech throughout the majority of this uh, campus, which is about 100 acres. So what's driving the concern by the university that this, what this uh, young woman was doing actually poses a problem? A lot of what you hear uh, uh, from um, the right in particular about free speech on campus, and I think it's a legitimate objection, is that college campuses are ideologically homogenous, right? University faculties replicate each other. They hire people that are just like themselves, and they tend to have an ideology of le that's left of center. College administrators tend to share that ideology. But I think that there's another thing that's going on here, and it's that university ad administrators are very risk-adverse uh, they don't like controversy. They don't like messiness. They like to be in control. And, uh, you know, uh, if you view college as a time uh, when we engage ideas that we have not been exposed to before, uh, when we speak freely with our professors, when we speak freely with our fellow students, that's going to lead to a certain amount of messiness, right? And there will be controversy. People will disagree. Um, I would argue that's how we learn to become adults in the world, right? We, 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 we learn that, you know, we have to live with people who are not like us and who will disagree with us. And we have to figure out how we're going to negotiate that for the rest of our lives. But college administrators would rather impose order and what they call safety. And I think that that's really what's be behind this type of speech zone policy, which again is not unique uh, to this technical college in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I mean, these things exist across the country. Uh, this is not the first case uh, that raises the issue. Uh, there have been a, there have been uh, some others, and uh, but but our hope is not only do we vindicate Polly's rights, but we. Uh, but we uh, vindicate the right of all students to speak outside of uh, speech zones with prior approval. Rick Essenberg is with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. We spoke at the State Policy Network annual meeting in October. Now it's time for a well-deserved shout-out. Please forgive the pronunciation, but Matt Nyes or Matt Nees, Thank you for your generous support of this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute. Supporters like you make it possible for us to do our work defending liberty across the globe. If you'd like to join Matt and support the Cato Podcast and the Cato Institute, visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor.